The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Copy of God's Word to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, it's in the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar uh, with your Bible, as you get in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let me just say, if you are unfamiliar with reading the Bible, maybe you're new to church, you're new to the Scriptures, John is a great place to start. Just pick it up in chapter 1. I know we're going to be in chapter 3, so you'll get to read and hear a few uh, you know, chapters in, but, uh, but this would be a great place for you uh, to start reading in your Bible. And in our series now, we have also crossed the threshold into the New Testament. And uh, guess what, y'all? As we cross out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, guess what is proclaimed across every page in your New Testament? This anthem of ours that God is great. He is indeed. And at the very heart, this quoted verse in the whole Bible, there at the very heart of it is this theme as well, the greatness of God. For who in here this morning can quote from memory John 3, 16? Tell me all, you learned it in Awana. It's one of those things. All right, just put it to us. Look at your neighbor. If you can quote it and quote John 3, 16 right now. Go ahead. Yep, participate. Look at your neighbor. That's right. It doesn't matter what translation you learned it in. If it's King James, New, NIV, NASB, ESV, we preach out of the ESV here, but it doesn't matter. Some of y'all get it? All right. If, if they got it, give them a high five. This is, this is good. If not, you can, uh, you can memorize it here. You know, it's interesting. The popularity uh, of this verse, at least in the American church and in American Christianity, traces its origins back to the late 1800s. Now, John was written long, long before that. But, but it's interesting here to think about the, why this verse is so popular and a huge percentage of us can even quote it. But it traces at least the popularity back to the preaching ministry of D.L. Moody into the late 1800s. And so just listen to this count as we jump into John 3 here. This is from Kent Hughes' commentary, and he tells the story well. He says this, D.L. Moody said this verse brought him to an understanding of the love of God. As Moody tells it, early in his ministry, he had gone to England, and while there, he met a young minister by the name of Henry Morehouse. And in their conversation, Morehouse said to Moody, I am thinking of going to America. And Moody responded, well, if you should ever get to Chicago, come down to my church, and I will give you a chance to preach. Now, Moody did not really mean that. He realized that after he'd said it, he hoped this man did not come to America because he had never heard him preach. And sometime later, Moody received a telegram that read, just arrived in New York, will be in Chicago on Sunday, Morehouse. Moody did not know what to do. He had promised the man his pulpit, but he had never heard him preach. Now, just like a timeout in the quote here for a second, that's like, you just don't do that. You know, your elders here, myself and Kate and Eric, like we, we're very serious. And whoever stands behind this to open up God's word, like that, there's a whole process. You know, it's not just anybody who sends a telegram uh, to us. Continuing the quote, says, So after discussing the matter with his best counselor, his wife, and with the church leaders, he decided to allow him to preach one time. Then if he did okay, he could preach again, and Moody had to go out of town, and Morehouse came. After the week was over, Moody returned and asked his wife, how did the young preacher do? His wife responded, 
He is a better preacher than you are. (laughs) He is telling sinners that God loves them. You must go hear him. And Moody said, what? He is telling sinners that God loves them? That's not true. She said, well, he's been preaching on John 3.16 all week long. So Moody made haste to get down to the church that night, and Morehouse stood in the pulpit and began by saying, I've been hunting for a text all week, and I have not been able to find a better one than John 3.16, so I will just talk about it once more. Later, Moody testified that on that night, he saw the greatness of the love of God as he had never seen it before. John 3.16 shows us the greatness of God's love, that it is a vast, unbounded bottomless sea. And I hope for us this morning, as we get into John 3, we will be captured yet again by the greatness of God's love. Look at your scriptures now. We're going to be actually begin in John 2.23 and read through 3.21. And as we do it, let us see the greatness of God's love for ourselves. The word of God says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
This is God's word for God's people. Now here's what John 3, in the context surrounding John 3.16, teaches us and leads us to this central conclusion. Salvation begins and abides by the love of God. At the very core, central to the text that I just read, the place that this scripture holds in the biblical narrative and God's teaching for us at its core is that salvation begins, new birth happens by the love of God. And our salvation abides or continues, it remains, it endures to the end by the love of God. You and I will make it tomorrow. We will make it to the eternal life talked about here, all because of the love of God. Now woven throughout all this passage that I read is this theme of belief woven in and out. And it's there's only one thing for us to do in response to the love of God. And it is to simultaneously repent and turn from our sin by turning towards Christ in belief. But the question remains, well, then how do we get there? What is it that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews? Well, he describes here in his, uh, in his narrative, in his teaching, in these questions to Nicodemus, the role of the entire Trinity here. You probably even meant, or, uh, picked up along the way that both, uh, or all the Spirit and the Son of God and the Father are all at work here. And we are called to believe, and the thing holding all of this together is God's great love. His great love. We have to know where it comes from. And so the reason we read the introductory verses in, uh, in chapter 2 there, in 23 to 25, is because it, it lays out the starting place for all of this, that we deserve condemnation. That we deserve condemnation. This is an important section. The reason when we start here, you may be wondering, well, I thought we were in chapter 3 and all this stuff. Well, you, you need to know as the Bible is written, like these chapter and verse markings weren't there. They were added later, some about 500 years ago or so. They were added for our reference, for our very help, so we know where we are all at. But there's a flow of thought that is coming here. And this is not just an introductory uh, uh, section to the conversation with Nicodemus, but also the uh, next two chapters for uh, what John is doing here is recording several conversations that Jesus has. You can go and read it this afternoon for yourself. But this conversation first with Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, a very religious, spiritual man, uh, then John the Baptist's disciples, and then a Samaritan woman and a Roman official and a lame man. And here's the thing, like this section sets it up as he uh, paints these, this picture of all these conversations with these people who are very different in status. The religious elite to the very lowly and who cannot even enter the temple, to the, to the despised, to men and women, the rich and poor, the rulers and the just rank and file, though all very different in status, they all actually have one thing in common. They've all been corrupted by sin. They're deserving condemnation and none of them, from Nicodemus to the lame man and everybody in between, could save themselves. There's nothing that they could do. There was nothing that would, that they, the, the religious or not, that could earn their way to salvation. 
And even though as we get to the text here, look at what verse 23 says. It says, many believe Jesus is in Jerusalem. That's the Passover feast, meaning there are all kinds of people descending upon the city of Jerusalem for this uh, religious festival. And many are believing in his name when, oh, get this, when they saw the signs that he would. We maybe think, praise the Lord. But it's not all it's cracked up to be for in verse 24. It sobers us right up for because it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knows all people here. Me, when it says that he didn't entrust himself to that, it's like Jesus didn't, uh, he didn't buy their outward belief. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the signs. They wanted the stuff, the food and the, the, the fame that comes from being around Jesus. But they did not actually want Christ. They didn't want Christ, and Jesus knew it. It's like, you know, when somebody's like a salesman or whatever, and they come to you, and you, you can just read right through it, right? Like you don't even have to have, you know, divine powers to understand things like that. But this goes beyond it. Jesus knows it. He knows all that is in us, and he didn't need anyone to tell. Like that's what verse 25, he needed no one to bear witness about himself. He didn't need us to confess what was actually going on in our heart, for he himself knew what was in man. And now what John is just referring to here, he's just, he's just kind of bringing it out, exposing it in general terms here. But actually in Mark 7, Jesus gets very specific about what is in our heart. He exposes us for the things that actually remain in our heart that lead to these things and why we deserve condemnation. Turn over to Mark 7 for just a moment. We'll start in verse 14. It's back just a few pages in your Bible. You'll go all the way through Luke and then midway through Mark, chapter 7, verse 14 and following. And just listen to this because Jesus is going to get very specific in a very similar scenario here, uh, the context of Mark 7 is Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, the religious elite, who we'll talk more about in just a minute when we get to uh, Nicodemus. But he calls the people to him again, and he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. And when Jesus says those words, what do you think we should do? We should listen up, right? This is important. You need to know what I'm about to say. And he says this, a very general conversation or a very general command here. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And in one very profound statement, Jesus says, no, it is what is inside us that we are responsible for, not everything else outside of us. We're not victims in a, in a, in a broader sense. We are not, uh, the, it is not the effect of our nature and the things around us, but it is what is in our heart that condemn us. He goes on, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Like he, Jesus has just preached that one statement. He just like kind of lays that out there and the heaviness and the weightiness of it all. And then he goes in the house and his disciples come and they're like, hey, what was that all about? Because right? they too, they, they're hearing this. They want to understand. And so Jesus goes uh, uh, further here, continuing on verse 18. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and then is expelled? And so, uh, yes, and then there's a footnote. He declares all foods unclean. For the Jewish person, this is awesome, right? 
all the things that they could not uh, eat from the Old Testament law, he now declares good. But he's getting at a spiritual metaphor here, y'all. Like, 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 understand what he is saying here. He's not just merely talking about food, but he's saying, hey, the things that happen to us, they go in and then they, then, and then they come out. What happens in the sin that happens to us from other people and the things that are around us, it, they, yes, they have an effect, but ultimately they go out. But it's the things that come from within, from within, that we are responsible for. He says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Look at verse 21, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These are the things that exist within our corrupted heart. Jesus knows all of this. And his, this, this language of defilement and purity, he, or a spiritual metaphor here, because this was all what the law was like about. This was what the, the, what the metaphor in the law is like. You had to clean yourself. You had to come pure because nobody defiled could come before the Lord, can be in his presence. If you were, you deserve condemnation. But you had to come pure. And so that's why they had all the rituals and washings of hands and things that they would do in order to come before the Lord. Not defiled, but pure or righteous. So Jesus knows all this stuff. He teaches it here and then come back to John 2 and 3. These are the things that he's referring to. That whole ugly list. That if we're honest, we don't. But it is what sobers us up here. It's not a pretty picture, right? It's not what we like to think about ourselves. And it's definitely not what we are told about ourselves in our present culture, right? Because what is the mantra? Like, follow your heart. Do what you want to do. Follow your dreams. Be true to yourself. Yeah, God says, hey, this is what is true of yourself. These are the things that are here and what's doubly bad in, in even our own day is because we're personally, we're quick to blame. We're quick to, we're quick to put the responsibility of our sin on other people. And, and here's the thing. And then when it comes out, others around us totally affirm it. But here's the even greater thing. Do you want the new life, the eternal life, the abundant life that Jesus is talking about in the remainder of our text this morning? Well, if we want that, it begins by then recognizing that we do deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment for our sin. We are responsible for our sinfulness, and we must see ourselves as Christ does. problem also though is that we can't recognize it we can't take responsibility uh, for it because the bible also says in Ephesians 2 that we're stone cold dead in our sin we need help we can't save ourselves the ability to even see our sin and to recognize it the, the, uh, as sin comes from God himself and in church like you're like man it's thanksgiving we're having a great week like what this is where the greatness of God becomes so sweet to us. The greatness of God's love, and this is exactly where he takes Nicodemus. This is exactly where he comes. He knows all this stuff, and yet it does not repel Jesus. It doesn't say he knows all this, he knew it was in man, and then he went and peaced out to the wilderness, and he went back to heaven because this world was too corrupt and too jacked up. I, I'm... 
It's not what he does. It's not what he does, but instead, with a great love, he talks to Nicodemus and he teaches him this next truth, that the Spirit initiates new birth. It's the Spirit's initiating work. Yeah, we can't even see this. We can't even understand this apart from the work of God. And so salvation begins, our rescue begins. Why? Because the Spirit pursues us out of the love of God. And so taking the scene of this conversation with me, come to, uh, to, back to, to John 3 in the first eight verses here as we just kind of like uh, understand all that's happening here. Nicodemus, as I said, is a, he's uber-religious. He's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were those, those strict adherents of the Jewish law, all 600 plus rules and all the, uh, the extras that they'd added to in order to keep these things. They were those that gave strict adherence to the law. And not only this, but he was a ruler. He was, he was esteemed even amongst the Pharisees. But when does he come to Jesus? What does verse 2 say? The man comes to Jesus by night. It comes by in my net because he didn't want to be seen. Like this would be totally inappropriate. He, as a, as a religious man of very high standing, Jesus is this like revolutionary. He is outside the teaching of the Pharisees. He is not among them. And yet he is gaining an influence amongst the people. And so he comes to him by night and asks this question, really a question about where he is from. And Jesus then takes him to, well, where we are going he acknowledged, Rabbi, we, we can see that your teacher come from God. Nobody, can, uh, nobody can, can deny the results of your ministry. No one can do these things. And then Jesus answers him and takes him back to where we're going. He, he, you know, like Nicodemus, he said, we, we, we know you're special. And Jesus is like, you have no idea. You just have no idea. Even how Jesus begins this, don't miss. It's repeated here how many times? One, two, three times in the text. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now in the Old Testament, the prophets who would come from the God, they would say, thus says the Lord. Whenever somebody says that, it's like, seriously, listen up. right? It's like another Mark 7 moment. Hear me and understand. And now Jesus, he's not saying, thus says the Lord. Truly, truly, I say, I say. He is claiming a level of authority in his teaching here uh, with Nicodemus that is, that, that is unlike anyone. He says, unless you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And maybe you're wondering, like, what in the world is he talking about here? <laughs> like, that's, he's not even answering his question. He's like, you're, you're special, Jesus. We're, no one can do these things. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but you have to be born again. And then there's like this whole back and forth about being born again, right? Nicodemus is confused. He's like, that's impossible, right? And we don't even have to talk about it anatomically here because it's like, yeah, that's impossible. Grown people cannot go back into the womb. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Truly, truly, he says again, here, he's bringing him to this spiritual understanding. Look at what verse 5 says. Then God. Nicodemus, you're trying to do it by your own strength. You're trying to do it in your adherence to the law. You're trying to earn your way in. And let me just tell you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, it, you will not get in. He's just like, well, what is he meaning in the water and the spirit? Is he talking about like physical birth and spiritual birth? Or what's he talking about? Well, it really, here's just another euphemism for repent and believe. 
The water here that he's referring to is the baptism of, of John the Baptist. And so uh, if we were to read the other uh, earlier chapters, you would hear about the ministry of John the Baptist. And then uh, the section after this, John came as a forerunner to Jesus, baptizing people in repentance. He was preparing the way, turn from your sin, for Israel had tried to live a life of, on their own, in their own independent way. And, and John is coming saying, we can't do this. We must repent in the water. And so this is what he's talking about, repent born of the water and the spirit, repent and believe. Unless that happens, can't do it. Things of the flesh, the bodily things, that's flesh. I'm not talking about that. But that which is born of the spirit is, is the spirit. And he's like, don't marvel at this. We see all these things happen around us. So, just like the wind. It uses the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so here's the thing, like morals, good works, this is never enough to save us. Even the most zealous religious person cannot earn it. Spirit's work is not something that can be controlled or contrived or manipulated any more than you can control or contrive the wind. We just enjoy the wind when it blows upon us and we go with it as it blows us along. So even in this, don't mistake the Holy Spirit for some like mystical force or like out-of-body experience, like getting the shakes or something, like the wind is blowing upon you. But there is this soul awakening of sorts that happens in our mind and our heart that we see our sin, we feel it, we know that this is, yes, what we deserve, and it leads us then to repentance. It leads us away from it and towards Christ as the only solution. To see Christ then that leads us to believe. And as the Spirit initiates this, as the Spirit pursues us, then we respond through repentance, through faith. And this, yes, is happens in our regeneration, at our new birth, but it also continues through our life. As we live light in the Spirit, as He works in us, as, the, as out of His great love, He pursues us and then is purifying us. As we see our sin our ongoing struggle and the ongoing way that the Spirit is refining us, we turn from it and we believe in Christ that His way is the best way. Follow the Lord, trusting Him as the Spirit initiates us and carry, or initiates it and carries us along in it. Then we look to Christ. We look to Christ for this is, what, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit shines the spotlight onto Christ. It's what He did and why we look to Him. For see, this is where the next section takes us. Not only does the Spirit initiate this new birth, but then the Son achieved that eternal life. That new, that, that new birth, it is the Son who does this. So look at verse 9, where, how the story continues. Because Nicodemus hears all this, and he rightfully asks a, a, a good question. He's like, well, how can these things be? His question is significant. This is like, how could God do this? Well, if you were here last week in Isaiah 53, you know the answer. For how would God accomplish this plan? It would come through the sacrifice of the suffering servant. It would come through the sacrifice of the lamb which is exactly where Jesus challenges him, right? He's like, hey, you're a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand this? Like, you are a master of the Old Testament. And yet you don't get this? You have not seen this? 
He goes on to tell him, he's like, you've seen this in an earthly sense. You have the scriptures. You have the Old Testament. Well, I need to tell you some heavenly truth. I need to make a connection. I need to help open your eyes to see Christ in the scriptures. And he begins to then speak of himself there in verse 13. He's like, no one who's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, can go. Who came down? Who left heaven's throne and came to earth? And who then, as we know, ascended back after his death? Sunday school answer, y'all. Give it to you like every Sunday. It's Jesus. That's right. And what, what, uh, what Jesus does here with Nicodemus is he takes him to an Old Testament passage to reveal this New Testament truth about how uh, Christ would be lifted up. And he takes him to Numbers 21. Go back there because I want you to see this here. As he's talking about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, the story is found in Numbers 21. Now, if you've been here with, a while, uh, with us for a while, you may remember we preached through Exodus, and so some of the story may make sense, or the storyline of it. If not, Numbers is their journey now in the wilderness. You have Genesis, Exodus, the people of God are delivered with these, uh, with these incredible miracles, right? They are delivered, and they make it through the Red Sea, and then God provides for them as they wander, even in their grumbling, even through their foolishness, even in the expression of all those things that we've seen that come out of man. God is so kind to them, but then they wander for decades. Forty years they're wandering around, and numbers is is much of that wandering. And so they come to this point here uh, in Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, and listen to this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Now, that sounds like pretty familiar, right? God sends us uh, somewhere. He's leading us. They're in the wilderness. Remember, this is like two uh, plus million people. And God's saying, no, you're going to have to go around Edom. They're going to have to take this route. And, you know, they like want, they they just want to like shortest, quickest, easiest way possible. Isn't that what we want also? God says, go somewhere, and we're like, okay, how fast can I get there? They're getting impatient. Look what verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. They don't want it. They're impatient. They're grumbling. And so they now they, they're angry at God and against God's appointed leader. They say this, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Like, well, God did some pretty miraculous things to get you there. It says, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this wordless food. Now, what, if, what has God been providing every day for them? Yes, food every day. They have God's uh, abundant provision right there. And not only are they just tired of it, but they loathe it. You know, like, how oh, kids like, are we having that again? That's none of your kids, are they? Leftovers. We're having more turkey and mashed potatoes. That what will be said every day next week. They're loathing, they're impatient. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now these fiery serpents, don't, don't see them as like these fire-breathing snakes that are crawling around. It, what's being referred to here is just like the snakes when they bite and then they, you burn up with fever, Right? And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. They're coming in repentance. They've recognized, Whoa, we, we have messed up. We have sinned against the Lord and against you, Moses. So Moses prays for the people. The 
Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what's he do? He makes this bronze serpent, he puts it on a pole, he lifts it up, and as they come in repentance and they look at this, they look and they live then. And it is from this example then that back in John chapter 3, Jesus takes Nicodemus to say, that's how they were saved. Now the Son of Man will be lifted up and you will be saved. As you look to him in repentance, as he is lifted up high on the cross, is lifted up has, yes, a double meaning, doesn't it? As he's lifted up on a cross through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, and as he is lifted up in our worship, as we look to him in repentance and faith, we will have eternal life. See, for it is the Son, the Son of Man, who achieved this, who earned it, who won it for us through His death and was lifted up so that we could live forever. And eternal life is not just some like future ambiguous idea, like, uh, you know, our dreamland that we can't wait to get to. But even now, like, yes, it is that. Yes, it is heaven with the Lord in all His glory. But it is even now in the quality of life that God offers us in the abundant life here and now. Joy today, yes, for a future glory. Peace today, yes, for the rest that God will provide. Uh, confidence today, yes, for the security that we have in future with Him. And Christ won it all. He achieved it for us when we did not deserve it, when he knew what was in us. And it was love that drove him to act. It was love that drove the Father. It was love that the Father orchestrated all this redemption. And so, yes, the Spirit initiates it. Yes, the Son achieves it. And now we get this glimpse into the Father, God, who is orchestrating all of redemption. This redemption plan that was made by God the Father. And His greatness is seen through it all. That's where this verse then in 16 takes us. The verse that we love so much. And the verses that come is like all of this was going according to plan. God so loved the world that he, even in this verse here, the greatness of God is broken down in every word or every phrase of this verse that we love. A pastor breaks it down in this, like, just take in the greatness of God with me for a moment. They'll be here on the screen. You can take a picture of it or try to write it down as we go here. But even in this verse that we love, we see the greatness of God, the greatest of all lovers for God. No one has ever loved like this. The greatest lover, he so loved, not just with a little bit of love, not with just like a, a fleeting feeling of passion towards people. No, but to the greatest degree, he so loved the world. The greatest of company. The greatest uh, uh, possible in the world when it's used here. The Greek word cosmos is always uh, used in this like sinful sense. A sense in that it's, it's passing here. God loved the world, the greatest company that he gave, the very greatest act of love ever demonstrated in all the world. The greatest act that he would give. See, love, we often think of it as a feeling. A state of mind, a, the, the fire in our belly for somebody else. 
And yet the biblical concept of love is of sacrifice. Love gives. Love says, you before me. God gave the greatest act, his greatest gift, his only son. There are many things that we will willingly give. In, in the coming weeks, uh, as Christmas approaches, we will give good gifts. But not our son. That whoever, whoever, the greatest opportunity ever given for anyone. And if John 3 and 4 uh, leaves out anybody, it like covers all the bases. There is no one outside the bounds of whoever. It's the greatest opportunity to believe with the greatest simplicity. It's so easy. It's not like, hey, get your act together, clean yourself up, and then come to the Lord. Get, get, get all your sin problems figured out. Get everything worked out in your life. Go put on a, a mask, come ready, and then, no. Just believe. So simple. So simple. I had a conversation with a 10-year-old boy this week who gets this. Believed. In him, Christ, the greatest attraction. We're not attracted to what he does for us. We're not just attracted to, to, the, 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 to the status that we gain. No, we get Christ. God himself. And it comes with the greatest promise that you should not perish. You're in Christ today. You need not fear death. Though the body may die, your soul will live. COVID may catch you. An accident may catch you. Something may happen. And yet you have the greatest promise. You should not perish. But the greatest difference, the greatest difference maker, the greatest contrast of all things, yes, we deserve this. Yes, you may die. Yes, all this. But comes with the greatest certainty. You have something. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Why? Because you did not earn it. You received it. And it comes in the strongest hands possible. The one who is orchestrating all of this. Gives you your greatest possession. Eternal life. Life forever. Life with him. And a joy-filled, abundant Life and God the Father orchestrated all of this out of His love. The greatest act of love in all of human history is the sending of the Son, planned from the beginning and promised all along. What have we seen? Chapter after chapter in the Old Testament. God's promise, God's plan, and it was not a plan to condemn. Notice that here. It, it, the verses continue. It's not a, it's not a, it was not a plan to condemn for why we were already condemned in our sin. We deserved that. We had done enough that, but it was a plan to redeem, to rescue, to save, to shine light where darkness had been created. And notice here the contrast then, because he says that the people, look at in verse 19, the people loved the darkness. See, apart from Christ, we weren't just in you know, darkness and, and, and oblivious to it. No, we loved it. We chose it. 
We gave up other things, relationships and money and whatever else, in order to love our sin, to love the darkness. But don't miss it here. Because it is out of love that the Spirit and the Son and the Father have also acted. When we loved our sin, when we deserved that, it wasn't that the Spirit was impressed by our religious deeds that He came. No, it was love. It was not nails that held Christ on the cross. It was love. It was not this thirst for blood that the Father sent the Son. No, it was love. A sacrifice. A you before me. For God so loved the world that He gave fully and freely His Son. We must get the definition of this right because we often think of love as, as, as passion, as fire, as I've said, or, or of our self-expression. No, the biblical concept of love is sacrifice given to all who believe in Christ, given to you. As you hear these things, all you need to do is repent and believe in Christ. As we who have embraced that, while the Father, while he, the, uh, while he demonstrates his love for us first, and we then demonstrate our faith and our love in return, we respond. Or to say it another way, we demonstrate our salvation. We demonstrate our belief. See, those who have been born again act like it. Those who have been born again respond to it. Life is different. Life stands out. We do not mirror the world's darkness. Look at the last few verses. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Unbelief lives like an unbeliever. Believers live like believers, live in the light. We love the light. The world hates the light. We love the light. And so we walk it out. Those who have experienced these things, those who have been Saved. Those who've been loved by God, love God in return and love others in return. Those who've been forgiven by God, forgive others. Those who've received mercy from God, extend mercy towards others. Those who've seen the truth of who God is, live in light of the truth around people. And this is what we do. And so at the apex of this whole thing is Christ. We deserve death. And then we have the Spirit and we have Christ and the Father. And then here is we live this way. But at the apex of it all is Christ. One in whom we live in light of. The one whom we love and because he has first loved us. And so when we say around uh, redemption, we say you are loved. This is a vertical statement much before it is a horizontal one. It is a reminder of the greatness of God's love and the uh, uniqueness of our love for one another. It is a reminder we've been loved from first to last, that our salvation begins and abides by the love of God, for this is who He is. God is love, and it is what He does. He loves as He initiates, as He acts, as He plans out of His love, and nothing comes close. Nothing comes even close. For his, the greatness of his love is beyond comparison. And it is because of this that we worship him, secure in his love to the end. Secure in him, looking to Christ in repentance and faith, looking to him and living. That's what we'll do for the rest of eternity. But we get an opportunity even to do it 
this morning. So would you join me now? Let's pray. And we're going to sing another song in response to the great love of God. Pray with me. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are, minds uh, uh, and hearts blown really by the, uh, by the, great, the greatness of your love. God, here we are. Uh, as undeserving benefactors of your grace, here we are this morning. Just grateful to be counted amongst your children. Here we are, God. Uh, Only here because you have called us to yourself. Because you have set your love on us. And so, Lord, we, we, we turn from our sin. Even now, maybe, God, we, we, we recognize uh, our sinfulness. You, by your Spirit, have brought it to mind. And so we just confess it even now. Laying it down at your feet. Asking for your forgiveness. And looking to you now, Christ, for your love you, Lord. I love you because you first loved us. Pray these things now. In Christ's name, all redemption said, amen.